Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Today's episode is an election day special because we are only one week away from what many are calling the most important election of our lifetime. Now, it's most likely not what you think. Today's episode will be very political. However, our guest today will share about what he's learning about kingdom politics, and we'll discuss what that means more and how this is producing in him a conflicted allegiance. So we'll be political, but it's not partisan in the way we're often thinking about it. Now, I couldn't be more thrilled to learn with all of you today from our guest, John Huckins. He is the co-author of the book titled Mending the Divides, Creative Love in a Conflicted World. He's the co-founder and director of the Global Immersion Project, which is a training organization helping individuals and communities in everyday peacemaking. And they have become a wonderful friend and teacher to us here at Denver Community Church. John's written for multiple outlets, including the USA Today, Red Letter Christian, Sojourners, and Relevant Magazine. He also has other books titled Thin Places and Teaching Through the Art of Storytelling. He lives in San Diego, California with his wife and four children. John, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Thanks, my friend. Fun to be here with you again. It has been. We were just mentioning it's it's probably been three or four years. It was, it was our past house, so it had to have been at least three and a half years ago since I was with you. Yes, and I think you were in the middle of moving out or into a new house, one of the two, the last time you were on the podcast. And you're right. I remember standing in an empty bedroom worrying about the echo because it was empty because we were moving. <laughs> so, wow, there it is. We we're out. so far. Technologically now, we're, we're way down the That's road, true. you and me. Oh, yeah, clearly. <laughs> I have really, really savvy in that regard. Oh, yeah. Well, first off, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, What should our guests know about you or what would you like our guests, um, our listeners to know about you? Yeah, I I mean, I think in the context of this conversation, uh, it's it's worth noting that I live um, in San Diego, Tijuana, which I really see as a a binational city, interdependent on one another, politically, socially, economically, Mm -hmm. relationally, spiritually connected. And so um, that not only informs how I show up uh, as a neighbor, it informs how I show up at a, at a binational borderlands where like one nation that I happen to reside in 13 miles from the border, the United States is, is a modern day empire in many ways and Mexico is not. And so it just like the front row seats of the ways that our nation state informs our neighbor, I think is an important thing. That social location is a, bit, a big thing to note. Um I have four little kiddos, and life is uh, sacred chaos every day, and um, we're navigating all of that <laughs> in this moment, especially. Uh, and, and lastly, I would say, um, you know, my life has been given to try to, to live and to train um, in, in moving towards conflict well, like conflict in any way, you know, pers- interpersonal, personal, systemic uh, and in election season brings that stuff up in Christians like few others. And so, uh, that is certainly my spirit of this conversation to say, how do we actually move towards conflict in constructive ways with tools to heal, to transform, to listen, to grow together, uh, while also holding onto our convictions and living those out. Hmm. Well, and, and you, you just talked about how there's almost defensiveness, uh, you know, people are ready to enter into an argument almost immediately when it comes to politics. And so that seemed to be amplified in more recent times. 
And so can you tell us more about how people often respond yeah. when the conversation turns towards politics? Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating to have, I have a, um, a, a bit of research, if you will, the last, over the last year when I've been talking about this topic more specifically, I've opened each session. The first half of the year was in person. The second half has been virtual since COVID. But by, just, by listing a, 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 a bunch of words that are connected to our political process here in the United States, like seemingly objective, like Republican, Democrat, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Super Tuesday, things that are just part of our process. And I asked the question, what emotion or feeling came up for you as you heard that? Oh, fascinating. And it, it is, it's a really fascinating right brain thing because we, you know, we often say in the left brain cerebral thing, but what do we feel viscerally in our bodies and what does it stir up in us? And 100% of the responses I've gotten to date have been connected to anxiety has been the number one, a uh, sense of unknown about the future, a fear, uh, scared, conflicted. I, I mean, all the, all the emotions have been bent towards negative, not connected to hope, um, which tells us something about the state of where we're in politically in this country. I think it also tells us some deeper uh, theological uh, pieces about where we place our hope and why hope in any nation state is insufficient as followers of Jesus. Um, but I, but it speaks pretty loudly as to wait. We're all walking into rooms hurting right now. You know, e even mm. as we listen to this podcast, we're hurting in some way. We felt it from someone we love or close to because they disagree with us. And we, we feel that dissonance and that disengagement or that anger or frustration. And so I think there's a heightened level of hurt at the moment. When you did that research, was there anything, um, and maybe it was a level deeper or it, this is the more cerebral side that you mentioned, but is there often an assumption uh, that politics means partisan when that subject comes up? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I actually say it at the beginning of um, this workshop or training because I, I go into redefining politics and, and parsing out how we see partisanship because I, my experience has been at that moment, most people have walked in the room associating politics with a partisan platform. And in the binaries that are inherent within our nation state system and this democracy that's largely a two-party system, uh, politics is just this trigger word of, oh, crap, which side of the aisle am I on? And how am I going to disappoint people or fire people up or convince people of my case? And then it's a bullet point conversation rather than a human conversation. So, yeah, hmm. to answer your question shortly, yes, it's largely associated with partisanship. And how then do you define politics in a way that you find is helpful for people yeah. in this conversation? I mean, I speak to Christians generally, you know, to followers of Jesus. And so I, my starting point is um, is a simple understanding of the word politics, that the, the Greek root of politics is the word polis, which simply means the ordering of society. Everything um, about society is ordered in a particular way. And Jesus, as, um, an, as one who came to announce a, a society that was marked um, by the values of the kingdom of God. You know, in, in early Mark, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. And then essentially he lives out those values and proclaims those values. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he becomes very clear about the outline of what the kingdom of God is to look like and how that society is to be ordered. So ultimately, everything about Jesus was about the kingdom of God, which was ordering society in light of a, a Jesus who lived and taught and died and was resurrected to offer an alternative to the lore of power and to the the ambition of consumerism, to retaining um, power and privilege that compromised our ability to care for the vulnerable and the least of these. It was a kingdom, as we often talk about, that was upside down compared to the Roman Empire. So, 
So if we talk about politics, we, as followers of Jesus, it's just about participating and ordering society in light of that kingdom. It's not, it's not a partisan thing. It, it, and so really, I'm trying to work at, at saying we need to critique how we've engaged politics. Um, and that's where my critique lands. I don't want to just start on a partisan. I don't want to just critique the Republicans, the Democrats. That's not a helpful starting place. I think we all have differences of perspectives and depending on the policies and our own baggage. It just fires things up. But if we start at the bigger, okay, how do we as Christians engage the polis that we've inherited in the United States, the society, and order it in light of who we trust as king of the kingdom of God? Hmm. Now, you you speak, to, you've been speaking to this as you talked about the, the workshops that you've been doing that are now online. I know you've already also written some blogs about this, but you talk about this conflicted allegiance. Can you unpack that a little bit uh, for us? Yeah, you bet. Um, I mean, a little backstory is I was raised in a home <clears throat> that not from a like a hostile perspective. I think many of us probably come from this place, a, a conservative evangelical home that groomed me in such a way that understood that the United States of America was synonymous with God's mission of the kingdom of God. Like when, when the United States mission is advancing, the mission of God is advancing. So that would inform and color the ways that I uh, pronounce my support of military invasions or understood the, our, our role in the global world. And, and that was just baked into my bones. And, it, and ultimately, I, what, what you see in this is this Christian nationalism, that, that God hmm. has blessed the United States as a, a divine instrument of God's favor in the world. And that is incredibly destructive, and it's idolatrous. And I call that in these workshops uh, a cross and country kind of faith. Like we're holding our cross in our country in one hand as synonymous and kind of we're, we're throwing crosses on swords, on shields like Constantine did 1700 years ago saying, God, um, God's on our side. And, and then there's this other paradigm that I think many of us can withdraw to, draw to out of an allergic reaction to this cross and country faith that I'm calling um, apolitical and isolated, where we say things, and a lot of evangelical churches, I think, fall victim to this. We say things like, we don't talk about politics, we just talk about Jesus, <laughs> because we're, we're scared of the implications. Like, if we talk about politics on this stage, it's going to blow things up, and our funders are gone, our board's going to disassemble, and it's, it's, just, it's just getting in the way of our gospel message. And, and it's really perplexing, because then you're like, hang on a minute, but, but Jesus was political in light of the kingdom of God, that said the first will be last and the last will be first and you turn the other cheek and you walk the extra mile. Like it's this alternative economy. So that, that fate, that paradigm, that apolitical piece, I think is a very privileged, um, isolated way to live. And ultimately it falls short when, when those of us like you and I who inherited privilege, which I define as simply the ability to walk away from the plight of those on the underside of power. When we get close enough to people that are impacted by broken systems, like in my neighborhood, I mentioned I'm in a border town. So many people I love are impacted by broken policies in my region. Border policies, my many of my neighbors are undocumented. It's very privileged of me to say, oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. Or, oh, yeah, we only talk about Jesus. We don't talk about politics. While they're being separated from their kids because of broken policies that I'm perpetuating or voting for or at least apathetic toward. So um, what I'm proposing with this conflicted allegiance is to say, okay, we... Whoa, 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 we got to transcend these two broken paradigms. Again, this is not partisan. This is just a broken way that Christians have engaged the nation state. And we have to hold our primary allegiance to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is our trajectory and the values that it embodied uh, through the life and death and teachings and resurrection of Jesus. Um, 
and as we've seen, seen played out through church history in so many ways. But we also have to leverage our influence of the blue passport, of our U.S. citizenship. Otherwise, we're, we're kind of adhering to this all-fly-away theology. Like, uh, I'll just pray to God and, and say the prayer, and I'm out of here. And then all those that don't have the color skin that I have or the blue passport like I have are broken by these systems that I'm called to participate in. That's in a, we live in a democracy, and I have the ability to change the broken systems that are breaking my neighbor. So that's also a kingdom mandate. So, so it's, it's holding intention. It's not necessarily saying they're equal, my citizenship to the kingdom or the United States, but it's acknowledging that both are at play. Uh, and many of us who live in nation state, for us in the U.S., we do. Whether it's France or it's England, you name your country, it's all about orientation to power in the nation state. It's not just a critique of United States necessarily. Mm. You know, you you mentioned how some churches say, oh, we don't want to get political. And I remember saying years ago in my ignorance, in a conversation around race, that this will be a slam dunk because the Bible seems to be so clear about the dignity and, and rights of all human beings made in the image of God, and that this is not a political issue. And here I am some years later, recognizing mm. my own ignorance and blindness, and now recognizing it feels like so many issues, important conversations have become intensely political, whether it's women's equity, whether it's racial justice, whether it's immigration. Could, could you help us understand, and I'd love to hear your perspective on why you think this is that we've almost forsaken our first engagement with these conversations um, being that of kingdom and the heart of God. And now it's coming from the political place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I think I, I think I hear what you're saying and, uh, and jump in if if it's going a different path. But I think that, you know, like you said, in the the, um, well-intentioned ignorance of saying that race is not political, it's a kingdom thing. I, I think that's largely true in many ways, but that is a reflection of people, again, like you and I, and I've done the same thing in my context, being insulated from the very systems that are broken. We, we're not familiar with the polit- like the, the nation-state political reality of our black and brown neighbors because we kind of can live above a lot of those. And so I think so much mm-hmm. of this is a, is a, um, has shifted as we've become more proximate with the, those on the underside of power, proximate with those in pain. And it's not necessarily even just physical proximity, but proximate in our learning, in our understanding, in reading the books and watching the documentaries, you know, all that's going on around race right now is so significant for us to continue to become proximate, even if we can't be sitting around the table because of COVID. But that shifts, like that doesn't allow us just to say, oh, this is a, the Bible's pretty clear on this. And so we're good. This isn't going to wade into politics. It is political because everything about how it's experienced by that community is informed by the way our nation state has chosen to order itself. And, and that's helping us, I think, get a little, it's helping us grow in empathy and also get more smart in how we're engaging and leveraging our privilege on behalf of those on the other side. Yeah. And, and it seems oftentimes we have, we, when we launch in these conversations, there's a starting point. And in my experience, what I've seen more and more, especially in our recent times is the starting point for many people who call themselves followers of Jesus is with their partisan um, stance, the partisan line. Where, what are some helpful things that you've discovered uh, 
what what helps people get back to starting with kingdom ethic first and foremost versus just the party party line? Mm-hmm. Well, I first want to say I think that the party lines, like the the critique, can be waged at the left and the right if we want to fall in the you know party line language. I think. That, oh, for sure, hundred percent. You know, I I think I don't want anyone to be listening in saying I'm only critiquing the right and you know the Christian nationalism I had grown out of. Um, I think the left has also fallen victim, and I think there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, Christ- Christian progressives have made an idol out of our partisan politics in many ways, too, and it's, and it's come at the cost of the way we talk about and to each other, like the dehumanization. And that, like that starting point of you are my political enemy has disrupted my ability to understand as followers of Jesus, I refuse to be enemies with you. Like I not only refuse to be enemies with you, mm-hmm. I am called to love you and to pray for you. doesn't mean I agree with you. doesn't mean I compromise my convictions. But I do wonder, like very bluntly, can we live our convictions without being a jerk? I think we can. <laughs> um, and that is a, that's as simple and silly as it sounds. That's a big journey for many of us because we're, we're heightened, we're triggered. Many people in their own pain, understandably, and trauma manifest their their frustration towards the other in that way. And so we can understand it, but it doesn't mean that we need to just accept it and participate in it. So how are we entering into those conversations uh, with this kingdom framework in mind? I am not trying to critique your Democrat party or your Republican party. I'm here to invite you into a way that is reflective of the Jesus we all say we follow and remind us of that story. Really, it's not saying, hey, here's this new thing or this new party. It's saying, Let's just remember who we are. Like, let's just, it's just an, it's ultimately, it's a question of Christian identity. Who, who uh, do we follow and who are we in light of that has to, has to be our starting point for how we show up in these conversations. And then when we get, like, there are, it doesn't mean other people are doing that work. So when you go into that conversation with someone that's ideologically opposite of you or just wants to critique you, how are we prepared to absorb that? How are we building our own... Mm practices of, of reminding our own identity are, are being grounded such that we could receive, absorb, metabolize that critique, and then respond to it with constructive feedback, with generosity, with love, to model that kingdom we talk about. Otherwise, we just fall back into that tit for tat. You know, I, a, a therapist, my wife and I have gone to, talks about, oftentimes we only uh, engage with each other's triggers. So we go trigger, 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 trigger. And I think a lot of that's the this political partisan thing. I got abortion, gun rights, you know, LGBTQ. You bounce off all these trigger, 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 trigger talking points. We're not actually talking to each other. We're just talking to our triggers. So how do we transcend that uh, in our in how we crack open those conversations? Mm, that's so helpful. You um in the a few minutes ago, you were talking about the tension between mm. kingdom and polis. And how do we take these kingdom values into the the society, the culture, the nation state in which we live? And one of the blogs that you wrote that I read, you you spoke toward this, but you used a phrase that I want to ask you about, and it, it, it spoke of dual allegiance. And I was reminded of a seminary professor I had who said, my allegiance is first and foremost to the kingdom of heaven and not the United States of America. And quite frankly, I do not hold dual allegiance. And this was a gentleman, this is going back now 20 years. He was in his 70s now. He's since has passed away. And um, Mm -hmm. so I I hear his words of, quite frankly, I don't hold dual allegiance. And then I saw 
what you were expressing. So I, I'd be I'd be interested in your response to to his comment and uh, what your perspective is on dual allegiance versus exclusive allegiance, which is what my seminary professor seemed to be speaking about. Totally. Um, and I remember writing that blog, and and I don't think I agree with myself anymore. <laughs> that, that's the fun. Um, I, I I think I. I think what I was trying to say, I would agree with, but here's, here's what I would, here's what I would argue that we have, because I, I think allegiance is a very heavy word. Like it can def, it, be defined as oh, yeah. something we're willing to give everything to, to give our lives to. And I actually don't feel like I have a responsibility to give my life to the United States of America. I think that can interrupt my fidelity to the kingdom of God. So what, what I would say is that perspective of your seminary professor who I've had a few of those in seminary as well can say, Oh, I only, my allegiance is only to the kingdom of God. <clears throat> and then you can kind of stick around in the halls of academia and talk about why that is. Stanley Harawas does a lot of this. I love his writing, but it, I think it can be insular and privileged in that we talk about, Nope, our allegiance is only to the kingdom of God. And then you have these removed communities from society, whether it's white academia or just like the you know a religious enclave somewhere that's disassociated from the systems and structures of our of our neighbors and and we squander our influence as US citizens and whatever allegiance quote unquote we have towards that that nation state uh, and then we aren't able to live our kingdom mandate to participate in God's systemic restoration God isn't just healing you know, we talk. We define peace organizationally as a holistic repair of relationship. That happens on a personal level. It also happens on a systemic level. So I would argue we have to have, rather than I would change my language from dual allegiance to acknowledge there is some sort of dual citizenship we need to be aware of. There is certainly a citizenship to the kingdom of God. That mm -hmm. is primary. It has to be priority. But there is a citizenship that is real for those of us in the U.S. that has to be leveraged. And it doesn't, it can't be wielded for, power and gain, but it has to be wielded on behalf of those on the underside, like literally giving away our vote to those that are impacted by broken systems, even if it means I pay more taxes or I get less of a break on my mortgage, like whatever it is, that's the kingdom way to, to, um, to think about that. Hmm. You know, listening to you talk, I'm reminded of, uh, those from the Quaker tradition mm -hmm. and it was, um, actually the Quakers were ones who in large part set the table for the abolitionist movement, both in the UK and here in the United States. And there's a great book on the history of the abolitionist movement in England, written by a guy named Adam Hoshield called Barry the Chains. And he speaks about the Quakers who were this really bizarre group of people in, in the viewpoint of most modern everyday average English citizens. So they would never remove their hats indoors. They would never refer to any anyone in political leadership as Lord because they had one Lord and yes. one King. And they were such, they were such oddballs to everybody. And yet exactly what you're saying, they didn't just say, well, you know, we have, we we're kingdoms or citizens of another kingdom. They said, because we're citizens yeah. of that kingdom, we now will invest our energy into what's happening here in this empire called England. And they're the ones who really fomented the will and started the ball rolling way before, like decades before mm -hmm. William Wilberforce ever even thought about abolition. Yeah. 
So it's a fascinating thing when to hear you talk about it as this is this is what it means to be a peculiar people, as the Wesleyans were called mm -hmm. in the 19th century, that we're not normal for all the right reasons. Right. <laughs> Maybe we could say it that yep. way. That's yeah. a beautiful example. I'm glad you brought that up because I think we have to, we have to harvest history for those examples of those who lived this conflicted allegiance well. Because I think yes. many others, especially in that kind of peace church tradition, have chosen the the isolated enclavey kind of thing. Like we're going to live this alternative uh, re alternative community, and that's going to somehow prophetically shift, uh, prophetically call out the systems and structures, but only through their lived witness in their own communities. Where you're saying, no, this Quaker community lived that peculiar, odd <laughs> life, which they would say was flavored by their commitment to Jesus, which is wonderful, but it also transcended into the systems and structures on behalf of their commitment. Yes, um, that's. I think that there's lots of examples, but we have to harvest them, and we have to like become students of that because it's not. This has not been the posture of Christians, at least in the United States, um, that I'm aware of. I, on a, it's not been the majority posture of Christians since yes. Century. Now, one of the things that does come up, uh, at least f for me in the past in this conversation, is, and again, this is on both sides, but people begin quoting Bible verses, mm -hmm. and there's there there are a few things I dislike more than people just snagging a verse out of the ether yeah. and using it. By the way, I've done that. I, I'm, I can imagine maybe you've done oh, that in the past, John. I <laughs> but the, the, two, the two verses that I've had quoted to me the most in regard to this conversation, I want to go one by one. The first is when Jesus is in the temple, there are the Pharisees there um, who, or some, of the, some in the religious leadership um, more fairly, who are trying to catch him in a trap to get rid of him because he's a threat to their power. And they say, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And for those of you listening, the background to that is if Jesus says absolutely not, he's guilty of sedition, therefore he can be executed or at least arrested by Rome. And if he says, uh, yes, we should, then he violates the commitment to God, which is the call of the Jewish people as the people of God. So they've got him, damned if he does, damned if he doesn't kind of deal. Um, and then if you know the story, he has a coin and he says, whose image is on it? They say Caesar's. And then this is the quote, render or give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. This is Jesus's response. And a lot of people, when it comes to this political conversation, they, my experience is that they almost use that as a way of dividing things. Well, there's Caesar's stuff and there's our stuff. There's the church and there's the state. But what's been your uh, interaction with that? And what's your perspective on that? That's an incredibly difficult verse. And I understand why people have, have interpreted it different ways. And I don't know if mine is anything unique to the contribution to the conversation. But um, I do think there's some va like there, there is a, prof a subversive prophetic edge in Jesus coin flip like, hey, like Caesar can keep what's his like the, the economy of the kingdom does not run by these coins. And so, sure. Like play your games, do your thing, enjoy the bread and circus of the empire, and have what you want. Um, I think there's something there. I, so, so that could be seen as like, well, that means he's disassociated from the systems and structures. And I don't think that's the case. I think, I think, in regards to how that moment went down, I, I think that was typical to Jesus thinking of that kind of third way. Let me provoke in a way that is up for interpretation, but. Um, you see the way that Jesus is, you know, living a life that's running in contrast 
and also embedded within the empire. I, you know, you have, um, oh man, I'm forgetting mm. the theologian who talks about, you can't understand Jesus outside the context of the Roman Empire in the same way you can't understand Martin Luther King Jr. outside the context of the civil rights movement. Like he, he was he was in this, he was embedded mm. in this empire. Maybe he didn't spend his time like lobbying as uh, a, a political elite, but um, he was saying something about that's not the economy of this kingdom, but I'm going to live within this empire and show a better way. Uh, and I think that that forces us to do the, the narrative work, that, like beyond that that verse in the set of the context of the Gospels and the Jesus story. How do we begin to interpret through that lens? Hmm. Here's one fun thing I learned about that story from a Jewish friend of mine. When Jesus says to the religious leadership, they're at on the, in the temple. He says, do you have a coin? And they say, yeah. And he says, whose image is that? Mm. He's actually calling out their breaking of the commandment, thou shalt have no graven images, because the temple had its own currency wow. that did not have a graven image on it. So they said when he says that to them, he's actually outing them, which I think is like, no. that's just verbal judo right there. Yep. Like Jesus was like a that's grammar it. ninja. So. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, let's talk about the second verse that's often used. And again, if you're listening, you may be familiar with this. It's from Romans 13. And this is Paul's letter to the church in Rome, who is a small group of people living not only in the empire, but in the heart of the capital of the empire. And he writes these words, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And then he goes on to talk about being free from them, being subject to them, honoring them. So I'd love to hear, John, again, as we're talking about kingdom in this tension, what do you do with these verses that were written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome? Yeah, great question. I think um, this is when we have to become. We have to exegete the text, the text, and we have to exegete our context and culture. So you have uh, a text that was written 2,000 years ago in a empire for sure, and, and Paul is saying these words to this community that you described. Um, and now let's put on our, our lens of, okay, our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God and the values that look a lot like Matthew 25, okay, caring for the least of these, visiting the stranger, the hungry. Um, okay, so that, that's our lens. Jesus embodies a nonviolent ethic throughout his whole life. Um, he talks very clearly about that in Matthew 5, of how we respond to, uh, to violence. And, um, and then we read a text like this, and you're like, whoa, what, like, what, how does that work? And so for me, when I think about that, I think, okay, if God ordained uh, the nation state or the systems and structures of any empire or whatever to be part of God's ordering of society— is there a functional role that they might play? Like, is, is there a, a, a place that uh, authority, governmental authority, plays in ordering the polis in such a way where, where those on the underside can flourish? That's possible, I think. The question we have to ask as citizens of the kingdom of God is if our polis, our authorities, that, that Romans 13 is talking about, is actually promoting the flourishing of those on the underside of power, those at the center of our kingdom ethic. If it is not, I would argue that this word that Paul is giving to the church needs to be put in question and for our context and say, mm. can we just 
check off the boxes of a polis, of a nation state, that is exploiting, that is violating, that is killing in the name of power and of consumption. Maybe when there are areas they're not, we, we celebrate that. We endorse it. We engage with democracy. When it is not, we have a responsibility. Our kingdom citizenship overrides that, and we, we leverage and liberate in, in those ways. Like, for example, for me, as a living this conflicted allegiance, when family separation was happening here at the border, um, one of the largest detention centers is just close to my house. And for me, it was a, a, a kingdom mandate for me to protest and to hold vigil, prayer vigil, pleading to the God of the, of who delivered uh, you know, the Israelites out of Egypt to plead with God to deliver these families from a set of systems that our polis had created that was denying their humanity, that was separating families, that was life-threatening. So for me, it was, okay, I might get arrested by that authority that we may want to interpret in Matthew in, in Romans 13. But for me, that, that act of being arrested would be an act of faithfulness to my citizenship of the kingdom. So it, again, we have to hold this intention. And I, and I think when this gets cherry-picked and dropped into places, usually it's cherry-picked and dropped into places so those with power retain power. And those without remain without. And the status quo remains the same. And we call that the, the peace of the, of the Roman Empire. That's a Pax Romana. That's like a pseudo peace. That's the peace that just keeps yes. everyone in their current places so everyone else remains in their place below uh, a level of flourishing. And that is a peace we want to disrupt. Peacemakers disrupt that peace to invite people into the holistic peace of Jesus, which looks like um, breaking through those boundaries and building equity together. That's a long response, but that's how I would interact. What are you hearing? What are you hearing? No, it's fantastic. And it's helpful to remember, as I said, this is written to a church who's gathering together in the capital of the Roman Empire, the same empire in the same city that's actively murdering mm. Christians. And so as we think about that and as we listen to this together and, and learn from John together, there's the sense in which it's, you have a pretty hard sell say that to say that this is a wholesale endorsement of any and all nations or governments. And so I love what you just said. It's often used by people in a place of power to hold on to power. That's such a, that's such a helpful perspective. And as I'm listening to you, I, I, I just went back to what you said at the beginning, um, that you grew up similar to the way I grew up in a more conservative evangelical tradition. And now you're telling a story, which I love about being at a mm -hmm. detention center holding vigil, protesting, willing to be arrested. And I immediately went to, okay, I know that there's not one step, but what are some mm -hmm. of the things that began to, to challenge your thinking and invite you to take a step forward? And I ask that because there, there's so many people mm -hmm. who seem to embrace the United States. And by the way, for those of us listening, as I often like to do with myself, I'll say, oh yeah, we should embrace the US. But let's say it this mm -hmm. way, who embrace consumerism, who embrace power, who embrace um, greed at some level. We, these, are the, these are the values of empire. So what is it that caused you to loosen your grip on those things or is causing you and continuing to cause you and, and really move more and more and more toward an embodied life of a kingdom citizen? Yeah, yeah great question. Uh, Dr. Reggie Williams, 
who is a black theologian who studied Bonhoeffer, who was trying to live this in the context of Nazi Germany. Um, he asked, I, w- I was talking with him last week. He, s- he said, the question we have to ask is who is being crushed by our polis? Whoa. There's no such thing as being apolitical. But we have to ask the question, who is being crushed by our polis? Our action or our inaction means we are being political. And it, it will continue to crush those being crushed. And so for me, the answer to your question is, I began to get proximate with those being crushed by my polis. <laughs> um, and some of it I intentionally, like it was an intentional movement of, of, to get close. And others, I just got blindsided by it. You know, it was... It was uh, my friend, now friend, Christian, and a Christian Palestinian named Milad, when I'm studying in Jerusalem as part of my seminary degree, saying, why do your people think I'm a terrorist? I follow Jesus just mm. like you. And he's exposing me to the stigma and stereotype he lives under as a Palestinian who lives in the West Bank in this Christian, like, talk about God using the U.S. as God's instrument in the Holy Land and bringing upon the eschaton, the, the final things. Um he was a pawn in a divine drama that my narrative had created and imposed on him. Wow. Whoa. Like that, that, that ruined me. And now I've made a life of learning from him and his perspective. It's my friend, Noemi, who is undocumented and dynamic young woman who needs to be a bigger player in our, in shaping our society who can't vote and says that if you don't, I, I can't vote. So I need you to on my behalf. Um, it is, understanding that my neighbor who is a faithful like one of the most like faithful christian women i know is undocumented and when she was deported and separated from her five kids and realizing that her faith has is um is her guiding light to navigate the broken systems that i have either participated in been complicit in or actually created and and developed and so it's all, it's like, okay, getting in proximity with those being crushed by the polis, by the mm-hmm. ordering of society, happens to be the United States nation state, has forced me to reconcile where I fit into that polis as a citizen of the kingdom. And there's times I can do it constructively and see change. There's other times where you're, you're the prophetic edge that might be arrested. I mean, arrested. This is, this is Acts 17. This is Paul announcing the good news of the kingdom of God and that Jesus is king, not Caesar hiding in his friend Jason's house, who pulls him out of the house, these guys out of the house, not the, not the political authorities, the religious authorities, the Jewish religious folks, pull them out, drag them to the city officials and say, these guys are saying that someone else is king other than Caesar. They're trying to get them in trouble for following Jesus, even though they're the, like that's how in cahoots the religion of the empire was with the empire itself. And I think a lot of that is true today as well. Like we are, we don't see a distinction between Christian and American, and that has compromised our fidelity to the kingdom. Hmm. When we get proximate with those on the underside, I think it allows us to go on this confessional, formational. This is a discipleship journey that I'm talking. Like this is a reorientation to who we are and how we show up in the world, based on again our Christian identity. Yeah, Greg Boyd in his book *Myth of a Christian Nation* says that patriotism is the greatest threat to kingdom citizenship and to kingdom fidelity. And that's exactly what you're talking about. What are, how I would say, healthy or helpful ways not only to engage this conversation with others, but even initial steps? I think one of the things that, that I know to be true of you is, and really of all of us, is a lot of things that help us grow, that invite us forward, that move us down the road, however you want to say it, are often not found on the page of a book or in a conversation, but it's an experience that we have. Yeah. 
And so for those of us listening, what are some healthy ways for us to engage this conversation with, with others, not in a way of convincing them necessarily, but in a way of sharing what's happening? And then what are some helpful things that we can do, steps that we can take that will begin to inform us more deeply about what it means to be kingdom citizens? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, we first can do a bit of a self-inventory on, we can say things like our hope is in Jesus, our hope is in the kingdom of God, but but where 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 is our hope right now? Like are we feeling, are we, are we part of the masses who are just feeling so anxiety ridden by what's going on? Do we need to have a moment to pause and replace our hope in the kingdom? Um, and this isn't absent, this isn't like the I fly away theology again. But how, how have we made an idol out of our political systems? And it's just if, if infecting how we show up in the world. So some of this is just like some personal inventory. Um, mm. I think some, some really practical stuff is how, how are we, when we're grounded that way, how are we being more generous in our disagreements with one another? I think we can spot when someone's just wanting to do the tit-for-tat partisan thing. And how in that moment are, are you generous? Uh, are you curious? Are you asking the source of the, the defensiveness? Um, of that person, do you have an eye towards that person's healing rather than just your desire to be right? Um, this goes back to my earlier point, and this is a practice. Like, we need to hold true to our convictions. Like, the stakes are high. We can't just be just trying to make people happy and appease. But we don't have to be jerks on that pathway. I actually don't even think practically that's helpful. Like, if you're trying to invite people towards transformation, being a jerk along the way usually just sidelines them. And then the game is over. So pragmatically, let's just try to do our best not to be jerks on this journey. Um, Sorry, you going to say something on that? No, I just, it makes me smile. Because I, I mean, I've been preaching now somewhere around 20 years. And I remember my first five or six years, I used to wonder why people got so upset. Now looking back, I realized I I was a total jerk. (laughs) Oh, man. Like, man, people just can't handle the truth. No, they can't handle my ego is actually. for them. (laughs) Yeah. Um, oh yes, I think another big one because this is this is largely Christian folk listening here. Uh, we need to do some some work, and this is why pastors like you are are so critical in this um, to interrogate our reading of Scripture. I, I think we've really done damage to our reading of Scripture. We've read ourselves into the text as the protagonist, when those of us that live in a modern day empire have more in common with the antagonists in the biblical story. <laughs> like we have more in common with Pharaoh than with Moses. We have more in common with Pilate than with Jesus. So how are we going back to the text through that lens, not just placing our, oh, God must be on our side. Oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. The story we're part of is actually a God who is on the side, quote unquote, of those on the underside of power. That Exodus community was the oppressed, occupied community. The God on the God of the Bible is the God who's walking with my neighbors across our border who 2018 landed here as part of the migrant caravan, pleading for God to bring them to the promised land, to find hope and healing and a future of of flourishing. So when we begin to reorient those those colonized readings of the Bible, it actually helps us um, disassociate the way we've placed it in convenient areas to to affirm our power, to affirm our politic, to Mm. affirm our policies. Um, And that's a that's a long lifelong journey, but there's there's guides out there. I even uh, was talking. Lisa Sharon Harper does a lot of great work on this. Um, the Very Good Gospel is is a book she has and talks about. Nearly every book of the Bible is written from the perspective of the oppressed, and so how do we go back and read through that lens and allow that to inform and infect the way that we not only encounter the text but the way we live 
that mandate as citizens of a modern day empire. Yes. Brian Zond was, uh, one of the first people that pointed this out or that I heard pointed out mm. that, um, when we read the text, we are the Babylonians, the Egyptians, mm -hmm. the Romans, the Persians, we're not the Israelites. And that the Bible is one of the few um, books that we have in our Western canon, so to speak, that's written from the underside of power. And that's what we so often, I know that's what I miss uh, so often reading it. So it's totally. so great to hear you say that. Um, you mentioned you're doing these um, workshops online. I know you do immersions, which right now in our surreal moment are on hold. But what what is your hope in these conversations that you're having about um, uh, kingdom citizens? I mean, I my my hope is, um, I guess there's some pragmatic hope around the election that's about to happen. You know, that people will enter that voting booth in a different kind of one. They'll, they will enter it. That they won't just have an escapist view to say that it doesn't matter. But on behalf of our neighbors, I have to enter that voting booth. Um, and then secondly, that I'm going to vote in such a way that's more concerned about the least of these than my own 501c3, or 501c3, that's my nonprofit status, <laughs> our retirement funds, um, <laughs> which sometimes are connected. And it, like, that's a very challenging place, but my hope is that it actually would inform, it get us in the booth and it would inform how we punch our ballots. Bigger than that, my hope is that this is a, a reorientation of identity around whose we are and mm. how that shows up as citizens of our nation state, that we can be more generous with, with uh, those on our political, our political other, because our, our orientation is towards the kingdom of God. And so we can, we can engage in disagreement more constructively and we can move towards healing together because we're not just worried about winning a partisan debate, uh, that it can move us on this trajectory as we talk about of peace, of shalom, of restoration, God's healing of all things. Because now we're, our starting point isn't just a political win. It's a trajectory towards the kingdom and all the responsibilities we have as living that out in mm. our nation state system. Oh, that's so helpful. Um, tell us a bit about the Global Immersion Project. Where, where is that online? Are there ways that people can engage your workshop and what you're doing around some of these things? Yes. Uh, Globalimmerse.org is the website. Uh, we have a whole series of resources now on what we're calling conflicted conflicted allegiance following Jesus in election season and beyond election season. Um, and we have a workshop, two-hour workshop that we can actually customize for communities that want to bring us in to do that live virtually for now um, and get really practical. Okay, what's our, how, what are the paradigms we've inherited? What's an alternative, a conflicted allegiance? And how is that playing itself out around our tables, in our congregations, in our neighborhoods, in our city council meetings? Um, that's a really tangible way. We also have a series of webinars where we interviewed folks that reflect different elements of what we've been talking about today to help inform how we show up um, in this season that I highly recommend going back. Those are all free. Um, jump on it and, and listen into those voices. There's also, last thing, there's, um, there's PDF guides. Like the, so a lot of the things in the prompts and the next steps and the resources, uh, we've consolidated into a PDF guide that, that helps you do some personal inventory of where you land in this, some follow-up reading and resourcing, and then where are some conversations, you, conversation questions you can have with those around you to walk into this together? That's free and online. Awesome. My friend, it's always, always good to be in conversation with you, to listen to you, to learn from you. So thank you so much for not only the work you're doing, but also for being here on the Changing Faith podcast today. Love it. It's a blast, my friend. Appreciate the invite. Of course. And that is all for today on the Changing Faith podcast. My hope 
for all of us is that we would contemplate what it means for us to live as kingdom citizens, to feel the weight of the conflict, the tension, as we live here in the midst of empire, and that this would inform not just how we vote, but more importantly, how we continue to live. And my prayer is that this would lead us toward continued transformation, both within us, in our cities, in our cultures, and in our nations. And that is it for today. Thank you again for joining with us. And as always, much love and peace be with you.